Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. For those who don't know me, my name is Miles. I am one of the elders here. Uh, Today I will be preaching out of Matthew 5 uh, as we continue our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open to Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Uh, This is the portion of Jesus's sermon where he talks about the dangers of anger. And there's a good bit of irony in this whole situation. Growing up, I was known for my anger. My mother, who I think is listening, she is, hi mom, (laughs) she is probably smiling or having a good laugh at the idea of me standing in front of a room full of people trying to convince you not to be so angry. You see, the hardest part of prepping for this sermon was not trying to think of enough stories and illustrations to put in the sermon, but trying to limit which ones. There were so many to choose from. As I reflected back on my life, my life of anger, some of the stories were kind of funny. Like the time when I was stuck in traffic and in anger, I punched the steering wheel and then the horn stuck there. And so for 15 minutes or so, I drove home and got a lot of angry glares and hand gestures thrown at my way. Other stories that I thought of were just plain embarrassing, like the time several years ago when my daughters were much younger. And during the Christmas season, I tried to build a gingerbread house with them. And if you're a parent and you've ever tried to build a gingerbread house, it's not as easy as it looks. And no matter what I tried, the thing just kept falling down. And as the look of disappointment on my daughter's face grew and grew, my anger grew and grew as well as I couldn't get the thing to stand up. Eventually, and this is the embarrassing part, I slammed my fist down on the table and I said very loudly, my daughters would say, I shouted, I asked, why am I so stupid? (laughs) To this day, every Christmas season, when Uh, we walk by gingerbread houses. My daughters never fail to remind me of this moment. It's become something like a Christmas tradition in my house. But most of the stories that I thought of as I was thinking back on my life of anger, the feeling that I felt was just sad. I got into fights. I got suspended from school. I broke my right wrist. You can see the bones still kind of sticking out. I ran away from home and I ruined a lot of good relationships, all because of my anger. And so today I'm honored uh, to be here, standing here. I think it's a testimony to God's goodness and perhaps his humor that someone like me might have the opportunity to share God's word on this topic. Speaking of which, the plan is to explore three ideas from Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You can see the outline here. First, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about our sin, and I think there's uh, three takeaways that we can gather from this passage. After that, we're going to look at what our response should be in light of our sin, and then finally, we'll look at what all of this means, our sin and our response, 
in relation to his glory. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. I trust that uh, for those of you with your Bibles, you have found the verses. We're going to start with verse 21. Uh, In the first line of our passage, uh, the first verse starts out, I think, simple enough. I'll read it. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And so the Jews have been taught since the beginning of their faith that murder is bad and anyone who does murder will face judgment. That seems pretty straightforward, pretty easy to understand. But, and you can see it highlighted, then we get to verse 22. And this is where I think things get interesting. I'll read. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell fire. And so immediately in verse 22, with the very first word, you see that Jesus is contrasting the conventional way of thinking about sin. As a kind of a side note here, I I actually did the counting. I looked at how many times the word but shows up in the Sermon on the Mount in the ESV version of our Bible. And the answer is 27. The Sermon on the Mount is quite literally a sermon of contrast, where Jesus is contrasting the conventional way of thinking with his new coming kingdom. And in these verses, he is contrasting the worldly view of sin with the righteousness of God's kingdom. And in doing this, I think Jesus is reminding us of three truths about sin. And so we're going to unpack and look at each one, starting with number one, if you're taking notes. The first truth that I think these verses tell us is that sin is binary. And this just means that it's, it's black and white. There's not much gray area when it comes to sin. We see in verse 21, murder is deserving of judgment. And then we see in the very next verse that name-calling is also deserving of God's judgment. Similarly, the Old Testament teaches that when sin came into the world, mankind was separated from God completely. God didn't have degrees of sin in the Garden of Eden. He didn't say, hey, if you murder someone, you're cast out of the garden forever. We can never be together. But if you gossip or like tell a lie, then we can stay like 50 meters apart. You got to just be in the different section of the garden, right? He never said anything like that. From the very beginning of the Bible, sin is an all or nothing proposition. You are either completely righteous or you're unrighteous. And despite knowing this, many Christians can't help but weigh and rank our sins. I'm going to try my best to illustrate the foolishness behind mankind's tendency to rank sins. I'm going to use an example from a book I read many years ago. It's called Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. And this example is not a perfect illustration, but I think for our first point up here, I think it'll uh, be good enough to, to help us understand the foolishness behind ranking sins. And so the, uh, the illustration starts with a business card like this. This card is nine centimeters long, although I'm, I'm realizing now I actually didn't measure it. I just Googled that, and I probably it's probably easier just to measure it, and then I would have been 100% sure. But I think it's nine centimeters long. 
And I want us to all think of this business card as our tendency to rank sin. And so the first thing you do with the business card in this illustration is you just turn it over to its blank side. Uh, and you guys can kind of picture this happening as I uh, kind of walk us through. And at the very bottom of this blank side of the business card, the book tells us to uh, write down the human being who we think is the worst person in modern history. Just pure evil, did nothing good, destruction, death, vileness. And so if you want to take a second and think to yourself, who would you put at the bottom of the business card? You can have a, a second there. All right. Now, I, I've actually filled out my business card. I wrote Hitler. I think it's a pretty safe choice. So I have him at the very bottom. And then at the top of the business card, you can probably guess what would go up there. That's who you think is the best human. And you can't put Jesus. We're talking all human, not God. So who's the best person in the world that you can think of in modern history? Just someone who is virtuous, someone who's devoted their life to doing good works. And so I put Mother Teresa. And then in the middle, there's a line here on the business card, and this rec, uh, represents the rest of humanity. All seven plus billion of us would fall somewhere in between Hitler and Mother Teresa. And then for fun, the book asks us to rank ourselves on this line. And if you're like me, you'd probably put yourself somewhere in the middle, but closer to Mother Teresa. And this is actually what my business card looks like here. You can kind of see a blown up version. I think all of us like to think that we're more Mother Teresa than Hitler. Now, I want us all to imagine that we were to leave this room together as a church congregation and walk down the road into the Patronus Towers. And I want you to picture me, and it won't really work here because we have this table, but maybe I'll do it right here. I want you to picture that if I walked up to the tower, hopefully I don't get mic feedback here, and I place my business card right at the base of the tower like that, right? Everyone kind of sees, you can see what I just did. And then imagine we stepped back from the business card and I helped you guys kind of gaze your direction to the very, very top of the Patronus Towers. According to the book, the top of the towers would represent God's holiness, 45,000 centimeters up. I also Googled that. Of course, I didn't measure that. So I think that one's accurate. <clears throat> now, the business card here at the base of the towers would represent the entire spectrum of man's holiness in relation to God. And so I want you to imagine God at the very top of the Patronus Towers looking down at mankind. All seven billion plus of us squished within nine centimeters, somewhere between Mother Teresa and Hitler. And when God looks down at that mass of seven plus billion people, I can't imagine that he's too much interested in ranking us all. To him, it all looks pretty much the same. Any sin completely separates us from his holiness. And so God does not distinguish degrees of sin. Now, I know at least one group of people who are not particularly fond of this illustration or these verses that Jesus speaks, and those people you can probably guess are the Pharisees. You see, when sin is binary, it makes a works-based faith pretty silly. Why even try when on our best of days, it would result in eternal damnation and complete separation? So that's number one, sin is binary. The second truth about sin 
that I think these verses show us is that sin is a process. And what I mean by this is that sin does not just happen spontaneously. I think all sin, or at least most sin, is rooted in thoughts and lies that build and build over time. Now, the end of the process is some outward bad behavior, but the steps that led to that outward bad behavior, I think, are equally troublesome in the eyes of the Lord. I'll give another illustration. When I was young, besides being very angry, I was also a thief. Pretty charming kid, huh? A kid to make his mother proud. Now, I didn't just wake up one morning completely holy in righteousness and say to myself, you know what, I feel like throwing that all away and just stealing TVs today. No, the act of stealing was actually a really long process. I imagine at some point in my childhood, I began to covet material things, things that the world told me were really good. I also probably longed for acceptance and attention, and I began to look for those things in the wrong places, not in a perfect Lord and Savior, but in a friend group that prioritized rebellion. And if I keep digging deeper, and if I keep asking why, why did I think that way? Why did I do that? I think that I will eventually come to a single thought, and that thought is God was not enough. This, I believe, is the lie that starts most sin. It starts the process. And if I picture God as a good father, as I often like to do, I am tempted to believe that it was this initial thought that God was not enough that saddened him even more than my outward act of stealing whatever it was that I was stealing on that day. I'm also tempted to believe that my stealing never even shocked him. He knew it was coming. He saw it coming from that single thought that he was not enough. My theft was just the natural outcome of a warped thought process. Similarly, today in our verses 21 and 22, the act of murder is the end result of a long, proce uh, a long process born out of the same lie that God is not enough. His grace is not enough, and so we refuse to forgive. His sovereignty is not enough, and so we take action into our own hands. Ultimately, he is not enough, and so we take him off of the throne, we put ourselves on it, and every time our position is threatened, we would get angry. So anger in this example is just part of the process that leads to something like murder. And when viewed in this way, God's judgment in, verses, in verse 22 makes a lot more sense. And so that's the second thing. Sin is a process. And if we take the idea that sin is a process just one step further, we arrive at our third truth about sin. I think it's the most important truth. It's that sin is first and foremost a heart issue. Now, these ideas, these three ideas are not new. They are not new uh, for Jesus's listeners. They're radical, for sure, forgotten, it seems. But again, these are not new. When God cast Adam and Eve from the garden, it was never about the fruit. It was about the heart. <clears throat> Adam and Eve yearned for the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, they wanted to be God more than they wanted to know God. 
And at that moment, their heart's desires were laid bare for God to see. Their action was simply the outward representation of a corrupted heart. So sin, since the very beginning of scripture, has always been about the heart. It's why in Psalm 51, David pleads for God to create in him a clean heart. And it's why in Ezekiel 36, God tells Israel that he will give them, his people, a new heart. And in Isaiah 58, which Aldi read this morning, today's uh, scripture reading, it's why God is so saddened with his people's fasting. Their hearts betray their actions. God says, is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And he asks them in disgust. Jesus, in today's passage, is reminding his audience of the same thing that the Old Testament prophets were teaching. Remember last week, Michael said that Jesus came to fulfill the teachings of the Old Testament prophets. In God's kingdom, you cannot hide your sin through empty traditions or good behavior. Our hearts will always tell the truth. It's why Jesus eventually summarizes the entire law into just two commandments, to love God above all else and to love your neighbor as yourself. He's taking the Ten Commandments, mostly focused on outward behaviors, and he's restructuring them, repositioning them in a heart posture. It also helps explain why Jesus's anger is okay and not sinful, and why my anger is more often than not sinful. A couple of weeks ago, Dr. Justin was here. He preached out of Mark 2 and 3, and he told the story of when Jesus became visibly angry at the Pharisees when they questioned his decision to heal the man with the crippled hand on Sabbath. And Dr. Justin showed us that Jesus's decision was born out of love. He loved the man with the crippled hand so much that he decided to heal him. And he loved God so much that he wanted him to have glory in that moment. And so, who in this situation was wrong? The Pharisees, who would obey God's Sabbath rules, or Jesus, who was angry? The question now becomes a heart issue. Now, my anger, on the other hand, is more often than not fueled by a different love, love of self. I get angry at my children when they make me look foolish or like a bad parent in public. I get angry at my coworkers when they make my life more difficult. I get angry at McDonald's when they get my order wrong. Notice the theme here. It's all about me. My heart is not set on God's glory, his will, or my neighbor's well-being. So sin is binary. It's a process. And it's a heart issue. The implications of these three principles are quite frankly terrifying. If anger is judged in the same way as murder, then what chance do I or you have in the face of a righteous judge? Jesus, in his mercy, provides an answer to this question in the next four verses. There is hope. There is another way to live a beautiful and different and eternal way. And this leads us to the next section where Jesus provides some opportunities for all of us to have some personal reflection time. 
In his first illustration, verses 23 and 24, Jesus connects the idea of reconciliation, which is having a good relationship with other people, to the act of worship. So reconciliation and worship are connected here. Keep this in mind as I read the next two verses. It says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus's words in these two verses, to me, have echoes of Isaiah 58. In both passages, God is not impressed with our current state of worship. Whether it's giving altar gifts, like in verse 23, or fasting in public, like in Isaiah 58. And now to his audience, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' illustration here must have been, I think, pretty confusing. Why would you leave the presence of God? Why would you stop worshiping at an altar? The problem is that their view on worship, much like their ideas in sin, I think is misguided. Like sin, worship is binary. It is an all or nothing proposition. You are either all in or you're not. This is why Paul in Romans 12 says to present our body as a living sacrifice. This is true worship, he says. Now, a sacrifice, it has to be all in. Any animal who has ever been sacrificed at an altar will tell you that they were all in on that sacrifice. And for us, it's the same thing. Also like sin, worship is a process. It begins with a single idea, but the idea is the opposite of sin. God is enough. And finally, like sin... Worship is a heart issue. During worship, God is more concerned with our heart posture than our outward acts of devotion. Just like God is redefining our view or the audience's view of sin in verses 21 and 22, I think God is redefining or helping us see clearly our ideas on worship in verses 23 and 24. According to these verses, it would be better to stop our act of worship and go and reconcile with our brothers or sisters. Why, you might ask, is reconciliation so important to God? What does it say about our heart? I think it says two things. One, I think it says that our heart is ready to move away from anger. Because how are we to worship God if anger resides in our hearts? I'm going to say that one again. How could we possibly worship God if anger is in our heart, if we choose to enact judgment, what are we saying about his judgment? If we choose to be the victim, what are we saying about his work on the cross? If we choose to ignore his commandment to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, what does it say about him? Is he really enough in our lives? If our heart fails to acknowledge his worth, does it really matter how long we fast, how loud we sing, how much we clap? The second thing that I think reconciliation says about our heart is that we are serious about actually submitting to his will. 
Now, it's one thing just not to be angry for someone who has done something wrong to you, but I think there's another level of faith in the act of reconciliation. Reconciliation is difficult. It's messy. It involves a personal commitment. It maybe involves some action steps. And because you make yourself vulnerable, you really have to think about your position, your security, your identity in Christ. Are you willing to be made a fool for his sake? It says that he is enough and that his will is better and more important than your own sense of judgment. So to worship God does not demand perfection, but it does require submission. If we are to take our worship seriously, then I think we need to take reconciliation seriously as well, since it is God's will. So this is our first reflection point. Are you willing to adopt a life of worship? Are you willing to seek reconciliation with your brothers and your sisters? Right here in church, perhaps, or outside. In the second and final illustration that Jesus gives today, verses 25 and 26, Jesus talks about settling a legal uh, dispute. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, these two verses, they don't really tell us what the legal matter is. Uh, There's lots of information I think they don't tell us, but I think there are a few important details. First, you see in verse 25, uh, about the seventh word in or so, it says, come uh, to terms quickly with your accuser. I think the word accuser suggests that this is no small argument. This is not a trifle matter. Things have escalated. Accusations have been thrown back and forth, and the anger has been elevated. There is probably hurt on both sides. Next, if we can turn our attention to the verses, look at where we're headed with the accuser. Jesus tells us that we are on our way to court where a judge awaits. And Jesus makes it clear what's going to happen when we arrive at court. It says we're going to be handed over to the judge and then to the guards, and then we're going to be put into jail, prison. And for how long will we stay in jail? Well, let's look at verse 26. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until your penalty is paid in full. Verse 26 ends with last penny. So there will be no shortcuts with this judge. Now, I think there are clear implications of God's kingdom here in these verses. This is not just any courtroom we are headed towards. We are headed towards a final judgment. And whether you like to admit it or not, I think this is true of everyone in this room right now. Our lives are but a journey, and our final stop on our journey is to see a judge, whether you like it or not. So Jesus presents us then with two options. In verse 25, he says, we could come to terms quickly with our accuser while we are on our journey, on our way to see the judge. Or option number two, we could refuse to make amends with our accuser. 
We could try to declare our innocence and argue before the judge. Jesus is giving us a choice here, and it seems to me like an easy choice. Just put your anger away. Own up to your mistake. Pay the accuser what you owe, and you can avoid the penalty that you deserve. And yet, it's never that easy for us humans. Instead, it seems easier for us to justify our sins, to deflect blame, or to play the victim. But Jesus is asking us in these verses to be different, to go against our human nature and to admit our mistakes. Say sorry to those you've offended and take the punishment now before it's too late. And so the final illustration in these last two verses, I think is urging us towards adopting a life of repentance, constantly constantly acknowledging our wrongdoings while you are on the journey to see the judge. Turn from your anger and turn towards God's will of reconciliation. So what have we learned today? We learned that sin is a much bigger problem than we like to think or remember. It separates us from God completely. It's rooted in lies and deception. It ruins relationships and it gets in the way of good worship. This is as true for murderers as it is for you and me in this room. Jesus, though, in his mercy, points us all to a new way of living, his way of living. It is a life that takes reconciliation seriously, a life that practices repentance routinely, a life that prioritizes right relationships a life that moves us towards humility and love. This is a life that doesn't limit worship to a handful of behaviors or events, but seeks to live a life of true, total worship, to submit to God's will in all things, in all relationships, a life that is willing to do hard things for his glory, a life that is willing to lose face if it means that God's kingdom might win souls. This is true worship. This is kingdom building. When you commit yourself to living this way, something really cool happens. Your life becomes a testimony to his goodness. In a world that promotes pride and revenge and anger, you begin to stand out. Michael taught us last week that your light shines just like the image here. Your light shines like torches that illuminate a city gate at the nighttime, pointing weary souls towards a new kingdom. I would like to end today's lesson with a story. It's a true story of what happens when people take these types of verses seriously and submit to God's will of reconciliation. This is a picture of my brother, Spencer. On January 26, 2002, about 20 years ago, he was murdered. Six young men were charged with his murder. This is David. He is one of the six young men. He is currently serving time in jail. And finally, this is Robin. She is the the mother of Spencer. She is my mom. Hi, Mom. 
On the day of David's arraignment, so this is after the jury had found him guilty of murder, but right as they were telling him how long he would uh, spend in jail, um, uh, my, my mom, Robin, prepared a statement that was to be read out loud in front of the courtroom. And so here is what she said to David as David stood in the courtroom. She said, I cannot begin to conceive such evil. After Spencer was stabbed and blood poured from his heart, you continued to beat him. What would induce a person to such brutality? And then in the very next sentence, she said this, I forgive you. God has mercifully lifted all anger from me as only he is able to do. And I give your soul over to him, the judge. I hope and I pray that you may also come to know his mercy and grace as Spencer did through Jesus Christ. Though you will spend many years behind bars, you may know a freedom greater than many on the outside. These were some of the last words David would hear before being led out of the courtroom and into a life of maximum security prisons. And David would spend the next several years in prison carrying the burden of his sin, of his anger, of his murder. And then in 2010, at the urging of a prison program that David uh, began attending, he sent a letter of apology to Robin. He sought forgiveness. He wanted reconciliation. My mom wrote back again, and at the end of her letter, the first letter she wrote back to David, she said this, he really loves you, David. He created you for a purpose. Wouldn't you like to know what that is? He is a redeemer, especially to those that are broken. And that began a period of exchanging letters. David wanted to know about this strange kingdom that produces such grace such reconciliation, such forgiveness. Robin, on the other hand, was willing to submit to God's will, to live a life of total worship and total reconciliation. The rest of the story is written by David. I will read his words. For the next few years, we corresponded through the mail, talking a lot about God and how Jesus was working in her life. This led me to giving my life to God and accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior in January 2013. I can remember that night vividly. I felt the Holy Spirit in me. What a beautiful feeling, feeling God's love. Eventually, I would ask Robin to come visit me here in prison. I can remember that first encounter face-to-face -face with emotions running high. I reached out to shake Robin's hand. And instead, she embraced me with a hug. The forgiveness I felt in that moment, the love I felt can only be explained by God's grace through Robin. Today, I have never felt so free, and I owe it all to the power of reconciliation. Today, I am a servant of God. So that's the story. Two people who were willing to submit to God and to seek reconciliation, one a murderer and one a brokenhearted mother. Here they are meeting for the very first time in prison. They're joined with my brother's friend on the right there. 
Now, there's one other person that is somewhat relevant to the story that I haven't talked about, and that's me. I mentioned earlier in today's lesson that there's a group of people who didn't really like the passage today. They didn't really like what Jesus was saying. And I said that group was Pharisees. But there's actually a second group of people who don't really like this passage also. And that second group of people is those who have had loved ones murdered. We do not particularly like these verses. It's not easy for me to read that my anger towards David is judged the same way as David's actions towards my brother. It's not easy to see your brother's murderer brought to glory when you are still hurting. But just because it's not easy, it doesn't mean it's not right. Now, after my brother's murder, my anger reached new levels. I became a slave to my anger in so many ways, and I grew weary of my life. I was fighting the world and not making a dent. And then one night, I just gave up. I laid down my anger, and I told God I was tired, and I was ready to try his new way. What Jesus asks of us in Matthew 5 is not normal for this world. It's not normal to weigh sins equally or to go up to someone and seek reconciliation. It's awkward. It's humiliating. And it's not normal to seek forgiveness or to forgive radically. It's scandalous. People may question your sanity or, like my mom, they may question how much you actually love your murdered son. It's hard. But it's also nothing that he has not done himself. You must remember that he is a God so passionate about reconciliation that he was willing to die for it. And just before he died, he gave us an example of what radical forgiveness looks like when he said, Father, forgive my accusers. They know not what they do. He made a way for all of us, the murderers, the angry, the brokenhearted mothers, the accused, the accusers, to come to his throne, to lay down our burdens in our anger and choose a new way made possible by his death and resurrection. So today we actually have a choice. We can choose to worship like in Isaiah 58, short observable acts of devotion that bring you no closer to knowing the nature of Christ. Or you can choose to make worship your heart's desire. You can submit to his will, will put away your anger, and make reconciliation and repentance a way of life. Either God is good enough or he's not. The choice is ours to make today. In a moment, we're going to do communion. And what a perfect opportunity to practice what we preach. So right now, let's begin to prepare our hearts and recognize that it's not the breaking of the bread or the drinking of the juice that pleases God so much. It is our heart's posture as we recognize that he alone is enough.